Well, good morning, everyone. It is so great to have you here as we dive into the second part of the series we started last week called The Importance of Questioning. And um, I'm just so grateful for uh, Rachel. I'm so grateful for what's happening on that side of the building. Uh, so grateful for you that make this possible as well. So thank you so much. Um, but I'm excited to dive into the second part of the series. Uh, last week, we sort of introduced this idea, the importance of questioning, by talking about the reality that many people... Um, in our modern-day Christianity and our modern-day experience of church, grow up in church believing some of the typical Christian faith and doctrines and teachings um, and beliefs, and then many people who have grown up like that sort of bump into the reality of the mess of church, bump into the reality of the, the grossness, the hypocrisy, the, the frustration of, of modern-day Christianity as well. And because of that experience, many people, we quoted someone saying this last week, many people kind of walk away from their life-orienting principle. And that's a shocking experience for someone to do. They walk away from their faith that they've had their whole lives. And I've had so many conversations with people and received several emails from people in response to some of that. And I'm telling you, it's so frustrating and so heartbreaking hearing how many times the church, how many times modern Christianity have hurt people and made it somewhere where they can't ask questions or can't honestly navigate what they believe and ask questions about what they believe. It becomes something where, where sometimes churches try to force people to believe something they don't believe, and it's so frustrating hearing how many people have bumped into that and gotten hurt. We also said last week that oftentimes the typical response of some Christians, of some church experience that people have had to questioning to this deconstruction process of asking all these questions, rather than being grace and love and respect for where a person is and understanding, it's been sort of hostility, defensiveness, and anger. Rather than understanding and compassion for the, the, the tumultuous journey that it takes to, to struggle through faith. And it's almost like sometimes the church has created an all or nothing environment where you better believe everything we say and never doubt and never question or you can't be here, you need to leave. And it's like people are forced to believe what the guy up on stage says. Everything, no question, blind faith, you better believe it, never question anything or leave. And that's the experience that a lot of people have. And you know what's crazy to me? <laughs> that's not even the experience that people had around Jesus. It's not, like, it's not even biblical. Like the very Bible that sometimes we as Christians are defending against questions. In that very Bible, we find a precedent that questions are okay. We looked at last week, we saw how one of Jesus' disciples, like the 12 guys, Thomas, struggled to believe. He, he literally said, we looked at this last week, he literally said after Jesus died, he saw him die, and then the other guys came to him and said, we saw Jesus alive, and he goes, uh-uh. Unless I see him with my own eyes, I will not believe. Like he struggled. The, 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 the like most outspoken disciple, Peter, <laughs> he denied Jesus three times. In Jesus' darkest hour, he denied him three times. And the next thing you know, Jesus is having this compassionate, sincere, deep conversation with Peter and hands the church over to him. That doesn't sound like he's not allowed a question. Like he, he makes him, him his ambassador, his spokesperson. 
Then there's a story of, of a father who had a sick child and he came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, would you heal my sick child? And Jesus said to him, everything is possible for the one who believes. In other words, trust me. And the father's response to him is classic, it's brilliant. Mark chapter nine, verse 24, he says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. What kind of faith is that? An imperfect one? And you know how Jesus responds to this imperfect faith? Help me in my unbelief. You know how he responds? He heals his son. Doesn't sound like Jesus was mad at people questioning or struggling or hard making you finding it difficult to believe. In fact, Jesus, I think wherever he went, he went and created an atmosphere where he wasn't insecure about who he was. He wasn't insecure about what he stood for and he wasn't insecure about doubt and questions and struggling. He wasn't insecure. I mean, even John the Baptist, like, like a guy, famous, famous, like he's got a whole denomination based on his name. I don't think that's really where they got their name, but we can pretend. Um, no, John the Baptist, like super famous, like Christianity teaches us that he was even born in a miraculous way. Like, like he was Jesus' own cousin. He grew up with him, and he believed, he knew that he was the forerunner to the promised Messiah, and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Like, that's how much strong faith he had. He baptized Jesus, and when he baptized Jesus, this is what he said. It shows how strong his faith was. In John chapter 1, 29, he says, pointing to Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he believed about Jesus. And a couple of verses later, he says, I have seen and testified that this is God's chosen one. Like the guy believed, right? And then he bumped into a really difficult time in his life. And he was taken to prison. And in Matthew 11, verse two to three, he says this, questioning and doubting. He says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? John the Baptist doubted. And you know, Jesus didn't get mad. He didn't get angry. He didn't get frustrated. He gets it. He understands this is hard. In fact, in his response, a few verses later, talking about John, and just after John doubted and questioned, look at what Jesus says to him. Verse 11, truly I tell you, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That doesn't sound angry or disappointed. It sounds like the very Bible that sometimes we get so caught up going, oh no, you better believe it, don't question, don't doubt. The very Bible sets a precedent, a clear precedent, that understanding that, that, and questioning is not wrong. Jesus welcomed it, didn't get insecure by it, and, and kindly and gently revealed himself through that process. So as we go through this importance of questioning, we see it's biblical, and what I wanna do today is I wanna look at something really important. Let me remind you of what I said last week about a friend of mine, a friend of mine that had grown up as a Christian, grown up in the faith, and we kinda of went into ministry together we, we navigated all the stuff together. We studied together. We studied the Bible together. And, and then he moved away. And a couple years later, a few years later, he calls me and says, I don't believe in God anymore. And what he said was very similar to what Thomas said. He said, I can't be honest with myself and believe unless I see a miracle that I can't explain any other way. Otherwise, I won't believe in God. 
And then he said something really important and really that stuck with me forever. He said this, but Justin, I know you and I trust you. I trust your integrity. And if you saw a miracle that you couldn't explain any other way and you told me about it, I would believe you because I trust your integrity and I would believe in God then. And when he said that, what I've realized is I think that's exactly what the authors of Scripture are trying to do. You see, they had seen Jesus, and they had seen him do things that they could not explain in any other way. They saw miracles. They weren't expecting it. They were confused by it. They were like, this shouldn't happen. How does this work? They were freaked out by it sometimes. They were afraid by it. It was crazy. They couldn't believe what they were seeing, and yet they saw this, and they couldn't explain it any other way. They claimed to have seen miracles, and then they wrote it down, and they're telling us as their readers, would you believe me? And so what I said last week, and this is where we ended last week, was this, that a whole bunch rests on whether we can trust their integrity. A whole lot rests on whether we can trust what they wrote and trust their integrity. And a whole bunch rests on whether we can trust the documents we have, the copies of what they wrote down, the English copies of what we have in our Bibles today, whether that actually reflects what they wrote down. A whole bunch rests on that. So what I want to do today is I want to look at that, whether it can be trusted, whether there is integrity in what they said. Did they have integrity? Are these people that we could trust, and can we trust the writings that they had, that they wrote, and the copies that we have in our Bible today? Can we trust those things? So that's where we're headed today. First, what I wanna do is I wanna show you how they claim to be eyewitnesses to what they saw. I wanna show you what they wrote in their own documents. Last week, we looked at how John described that in, in his story of Jesus, but John, one of Jesus' disciples, also wrote some of the letters that we have copies of in our Bible. And in and, and 1 John 1 verse one, he explains why he wrote this stuff down, why he did this. Here's what he says. 1 John 1 verse one, it says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we've heard it, which we have seen with our eyes, not heard about it, not imagined, we've seen it, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This wasn't something we dreamed. There was a bunch of us, we saw this, we touched it. This is what we're proclaiming concerning the word of life. And as we're saying, don't know else how to explain it, but life appeared and we've seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life. It wasn't just a guy, it wasn't just a man. There was something more, something eternal, something bigger, something God-like, the eternal life, which was with the Father, God, and he appeared to us. And it's like, I don't know how else to explain what I saw. We proclaim, verse three, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. He says that like three times. We saw it, we heard it, we touched it so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John's saying, we saw this and we don't know how else to explain it except that it's attached to God in some way. Luke, another guy who wrote a story of Jesus, an account of Jesus' life, <clears throat> this is what he says when he claims and, and, and it kind of starts his account of Jesus' life. Luke chapter one, verse one, he says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. There were some things that happened in, around us, among us, and many have taken to write down what happened just as they were handed down to us by those from the, the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. They were eyewitnesses. They saw this. 
Verse three, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Luke was a Greek physician. He wasn't one of the disciples, but he bumped into this and was like, how do you explain this stuff? And so he went and spoke to every eyewitness he could find and carefully investigated it all. Then he says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He was writing this to a friend, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So Luke claims to have interviewed all the eyewitnesses he could and then wrote this down. Another eyewitness account. In Acts 1 verse 1, Luke didn't just um, write about the Jesus story. He wanted to write more about how Christianity spread. So Luke part 2, the sequel, is actually Acts. And this is what he says in Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. And then he says in verse 3, after his suffering, after he died on the cross... He presented himself to them. He showed up again. And he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Bunch of people saw it. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. I don't know how else to explain this. It's crazy. And yet all these people saw. Paul, a guy we've spoken about him before, he hated Christians and he hated Jesus and he hated Christianity until he met him after he knew he had died. Later, he says this, Jesus, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the 12, his disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. That's an important statement because he's basically saying, you can go ask them. They're still alive. They can confirm or deny that this is true. This is what Paul was saying. Verse seven, then he appeared to James, his brother, this is after he died and rose again, then to all the apostles, and at last, all of, uh, last of all, he appeared to me also. So what these guys are doing is they're claiming to have seen Jesus, eyewitnesses. Acts 26 verse nine kind of describes some of Paul's story. You see, Paul, um, again, like I said, he hated it. He didn't want anything to do with it. He tried to destroy it. And then he met Jesus. Like, what do you do then? He met Jesus. And he went around telling everybody about Jesus. And eventually, he was arrested several times, actually. But the one time he was arrested and taken before a local king, King Agrippa, to kind of give his defense of what was happening to see if, if he was going to be you know, sent to Rome, imprisoned, or killed, or whatever. And he's telling King Agrippa his story. And in Acts 26, verse 9, we read this. Paul speaking to King Agrippa, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I needed to oppose it. And that's exactly what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Paul said I did everything to kill them. And then he talks about, you know, he continues, I won't read the whole thing, go read it in Acts chapter 26. Um, He talks about how he met Jesus. And it's like, I'm busy trying to kill everybody. And Jesus shows up and it's like, oh no, What do you do in that moment? And he goes, wait, 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 who are you? And Jesus, there with him, and Jesus responds like this in verse 15. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Listen to these next words. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have 
seen. I need you to go tell people what you saw and will see of me. Then he shared how he went around telling people how Jesus rose from the dead and how it changes everybody's life. And I love this next thing in verse 24. Uh, Agrippa is sitting there on the throne. Festus, one of the local governors, is standing with Agrippa. And Festus is like, this guy's crazy. Look what he says in verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul speaking about Jesus rising from the dead. And he goes, you're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great, your great learning is driving you insane. And then Paul says something so big. Verse 25, he says, I'm not insane. Most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. Reasonable? How can it be reasonable? He's just like Jesus rising from the dead. No, it's true and reasonable. Then he says this, verse 26, the king, and he points to Agrippa, the king is familiar with these things. I wonder if Festus was like, huh? The king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. You know why? Because it was not done in a corner. And what he is saying and what all these other people who wrote this stuff down are saying is, this isn't new information. This isn't stuff you can just see because we wrote it down and made it up. No, no, no. This was done in front of thousands of people. Thousands of people can say, if you write down that Jesus said this and did this, thousands of people could come and say, no, he didn't. Who's Jesus? No, thousands of people watched this happen. And even King Agrippa knew about this because it wasn't done in a corner. And you know what? What's so cool, we even know that from 2,000 years later. You know why? Because if you take every Bible in the whole world and you burn them and get rid of every Bible in the whole world, we would still have historical documents that tell us that Jesus existed and who he was. You know that? I want to show you some, some historians that hated Christianity. Remember who killed Jesus? It was the Romans and the Jewish leaders, religious leaders. They kill Jesus, and there's two Roman historians that are opponents of Christianity, and one Jewish historian, opponent of Christianity, that tells us about Jesus and about Christianity. I want to point them out to you. Their names are Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, and Josephus. And these guys are so fascinating, and it shows us that Christianity and Jesus didn't happen in some corner that someone made up, and it's like, oh, cool, let's believe this, make a new movement. No, 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 that happened in front of thousands of people, and it actually we know about it even if we didn't have the Bible. Tacitus was born in AD 56 and he died in AD 120. Um, and he's one of the most important Roman historians. And we've got copies of what he wrote just after the turn of the first century. And he, he refers to Christians and Jesus when he talks about Nero. Um, we all kind of know Emperor Nero. Remember Nero, one of the Roman emperors in around 64 AD? And he refers to Emperor Nero and a fire that broke out in Rome that burned, I think the fire broke out in July 18th, 64 AD. And it burned 10 of the 14 districts of Rome. And Tacitus is writing this history and this rumor began to spread that Nero actually started the fire or had it ordered to be started. And everybody was going, whoa, 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 whoa. he did that. And he describes this in his history called The Annals. And you can read this in Tacitus's Annals, the, the, the Annals, book 15, chapter 44. You can Google it. And you can read. This was written then. This is what Tacitus writes. After describing that Nero probably started this, he says, but all the human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and all the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration, the big fire in Rome, was the result of an order. Nobody believed it. 
Consequently, to get rid of the report, here's what Nero did, this is history. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. So, so what he's saying is by AD 64, around 30 years after Jesus died, and according to the Christians, rose again, 30 years later, there was a huge group, large population of Christians living in Rome, living in such a way that everybody's going, these guys are different. Tacitus explains where this religion, where this thing came from. He says, Christus, which is like a Roman version of Christ, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, crucifixion. During the reign of Tiberius, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment when he was killed, broke out again, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. You see, history tells us that a guy named Pontius Pilate killed Jesus, and a superstition arose. What was that? Could it have been that this guy rose again? But a superstition arose that, that didn't only take over Judea, but took over Rome. It arrived in Rome. This is history. Even if we didn't have the Bible, we wouldn't know. But Tacitus doesn't tell us what the superstition is, but there's another Roman historian that does, and that's Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger was a, a, a Roman governor in the area of Pontus and Bithynia, which was a Roman province. And he, he governed there from about 111 to 113 AD. And he had ties with the current emperor, Trajan. And he would write letters to him to try and, you know, obviously to win his favor sometimes, but also to get advice from him. How do I govern? How do you want me to govern this Roman province? And at the time, there was a Christian persecution. In other words, we hate Christians, we wanna kill Christians. And this is what Pliny the Younger wrote to Trajan when he first bumped into Christianity in his province. He wrote this, it is my practice, my Lord, to refer to you all the matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? Brownie points. Then he goes on, he says, I have never participated in trials of Christians. I therefore do not know, and this is history, this was written in about 111, 112 AD. I therefore do not know what offenses it is the practice of punishing or investigating. You know, what, if they do what, when do I punish, when do I investigate? And to what extent? And I have been not a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or no difference between the very young and the more mature. Should I just punish kids if they're Christians or just adults? He continues, he says, whether pardon is to be granted for repentance. If they say I'm no longer a Christian, should I pardon them? Or if a man has once been a Christian, it does him no good to have ceased to be one, whether the name itself, even without offenses, or only the offenses associated with the name are to be punished. So if they call themselves a Christian, do I just punish them? Or only if they do stuff, do I punish them? So he's writing this letter. It's crazy, this is history. He continues, meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. So the people I have caught, here's what I did. And he tells Trajan this. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed and said, yes, they were, I interrogated a second time and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. If after three times they wouldn't say they wouldn't, weren't a Christian, I killed them. 
For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. They asserted, you know, after kind of walking through it and finding out what they did, this is what they said. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. So they said the only thing they did wrong is meet probably on a Sunday and sing songs to Christ as if he was God. This is history. This is what they told Pliny the Younger when he was gonna kill them. I judged, uh, and then they also bound themselves by oath not to, co- not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery. So the only thing they did wrong was sing to Jesus as if he was a God and promise to be good. <laughs> this comes from Pliny. I judged it all the more necessary because I didn't understand this. I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. So according to documents that are not in the Bible, it seems like the superstition that these Christians had was that Jesus was a God and that something happened to spark the superstition to grow perhaps the resurrection. I don't have time to go into Josephus' writings, but Josephus is a Hebrew, a Jewish guy who was born in 37 AD and became a Roman citizen and wrote the history of Israel, of, of, of the Jews during that time. And he referred to Jesus as well in his writings. And you can go Google these things and see them. This was what happened. So it's so interesting that to me that even if we didn't have a Bible, even if we didn't have these eyewitness accounts, history shows us. Documents that were written by opponents of Christianity show us that Jesus existed, that he said some pretty big things about himself and about God, that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, that his followers believed a superstition about him, that he was was they worshiped him as God, and maybe, we don't know if the, the, they don't say about the resurrection, but that superstition seems to fit in their minds that that was the superstition that these opponents said, and that Christianity spread rapidly throughout the Roman Empire. Without a Bible, we know that stuff. And what's interesting is we know that for sure because these documents were written at least 250 years before the New Testament was finally compiled taking all these manuscripts and all these documents that were written in the eyewitness time and put them together. They didn't have a Bible and yet they discovered and said all these things. It's fascinating to me. So the basic story of Christianity, we don't need the Bible for that. That's history. That's been corroborated by opponents of Christianity. Which, if you come back to that first question we're asking is, can we trust that these documents are real? Can we trust the Bible? It seems like if it's corroborated by history, opponents, it's probably at least somewhat trustworthy to see what this all says. But, you know, what about what they wrote? Because they wrote some crazy stuff in there. They claim to be eyewitnesses, and you know, it's hard to argue that they were eyewitnesses, but they claim to be eyewitnesses, and then they write all this crazy stuff like miracles and Jesus rising from the dead. How do we trust that? Well, that becomes a question of their integrity. Can we trust their integrity, or are they gonna lie? Are they gonna make stuff up? I think there's a really good line of evidence that helps us understand. We probably can trust these men, their integrity. Um, and, and, and the reason I think that is because These guys had nothing to gain by writing what they wrote. They had nothing to gain. 
In fact, when they decided to believe this and share this with others, they had a whole bunch to lose. We just read what Pliny did to those two Christian deaconesses. He tortured them, executed people. They had nothing to gain. And what we find as well is that Tacitus, after describing that Nero put the blame on the Christians in AD 64, right around the time when Paul was beheaded for being who he was, for being a Christian. We find that Tacitus describes more punishment, more persecution. He says this, Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty to being Christians. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. So these guys said, I know more Christians. Will you let me go if I bust them? And they called all the Christians together and they got them. An immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of a hatred against mankind. And here's what happened to them. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished. They were dressed in dead animal skins and dogs were released on these Christians for being Christian. Or they were nailed to crosses or they were doomed to flames and burned to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. In other words, they took Christians and made them human candles according to Tacitus. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus. You see, these guys who wrote this stuff, they wrote this at the risk of being torn by animals on purpose by leaders and governors. They were killed for what they believed. They were tortured for what they believed. They had nothing to gain. And like I said, this was a time when Paul himself was beheaded. Again, nothing to gain, everything to lose. They didn't, you know, they were not like the modern day televangelists who have a private jet and get to do all the stuff on the basis of what they're saying and everybody giving them money. There was nothing to gain by believing and writing and sharing what they shared. And it wasn't just at the end of their life. It was their whole life. Paul describes his experience of being a Christian and a Christian teacher in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11. He says this, describing his life. I have worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. Wherever he went carrying this message that he said he saw, that he said was true, he was in Danger. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. These guys were gaining nothing by writing and believing and sharing this. They were only gaining persecution, torture, suffering, and death. Why would they do that? Why, why would they believe this? And they held on to it for their entire lives. In fact, I really think if what they wrote wasn't true, these guys were stupid. They were stupid to hold on to this in the face of all that, if what they wrote wasn't true. But the fact that they never recanted and lived through the pain of persecution, torture, suffering, and eventually death says something about their integrity. 
Like, like, how do you judge a person's integrity? Are they willing to do that in the midst of loss, complete loss? I, it's hard to say they weren't, didn't have integrity. It's really hard. In fact, this is actually the reason that a good friend of mine who, when I first met him, was an outspoken atheist. This, this, this is the final thing that made him go, you know what, I can't deny this. I have to look into this. This idea that these guys had so much integrity to say, this is what I believe, and years and years later, they were willing to die for it. Um, this guy, I want to tell you a bit about him. He's a friend of mine. I met him when he was an atheist, but he had grown up in the church. His dad was a pastor, and uh, he actually went to seminary and got a theology degree. He didn't finish it. He got a half a theology degree, and then he, he kind of became a youth pastor, and then he bumped into the mess of Christianity, and he bumped into the hurt and the hypocrisy of church, and he bumped into some tragedy, and he had some questions that were never allowed to be asked, and so he walked away. And he said, forget ministry, forget all that. And he went into education and got a PhD and became a professor of education. Smart, educated guy. And he walked away from faith the first time. And he was a nice guy. You know, sometimes we think atheists are ugly people. No, he was a wonderful, wonderful guy. The first thing he actually said to me when we did some, uh, something together, he looked at me and he said, hey, Justin. He knew I was a pastor. And he said, hey, Justin, if you were ever kicked out of church or pushed away, I won't reject you. I will love you. I was like, wow, that's so kind, but it also reflects what happened to you. And he wanted to be better. So we spent a lot of time together, became good friends. Uh, we spoke about Christianity, and then, and then a few years later, we were spending a f Christmas together, and he pulled out a letter that he had written for me, and he gave a copy to me and a copy to my wife, and he said, this is your Christmas gift. And he gave us this letter, and as I read it, it was a long letter, and sort of a page and a half in, I actually want to read you some of it. But the first page and a half was all about how much he hated Christianity and how horrible it was and how all the awful things that had happened. I'm like, this is not a good gift. <laughs> but then halfway through the letter, after he's described all this mess, I want to read what he said. He summarized all that mess by saying, God and his church made me sick. Then he said, ironically, after I left the church and turned, me back and turned my back on God, I became a significantly better person. I began a relationship with an unchurched person who believed in a God of some kind but had no knowledge of what it meant to really be a Christian. I found that she was more moral, more hopeful, and had less sin than any Christian I had ever known, despite being told my whole life that non-believers were incapable of such things. I began to really care about morality, justice, and compassion for all not just for people who agreed with my perspectives. But I couldn't shake the voice in the back of my head. I, couldn't hear the, I, I could hear the nagging sanguine song despite my newfound freedom. Know that I didn't miss it. Sleeping in on Sundays and keeping all my money for the safety of my family didn't cause me any guilt whatsoever. The only thing that I couldn't shake was the, from my mother, another person I watched turn her back on God years before. What if I'm wrong? What if God does exist? So after a season of palate cleansing, my sorbet of throwing myself into a cause most worthy, education, I opened myself up to asking questions, important questions, with potential ramifications. Could I be responsible for influencing my wife and likely indoctrinating my little girl toward a bad decision? Plus, quite pragmatically, we had come across a need that only church could likely help. We were alone in a new place, and we needed a group of people to belong to. So I started looking.
Then he says this, we started talking more. My wife started reading more. We talked with believers, agnostics, atheists. I watched YouTube voraciously, watching debates between religious scholars and agnostic scholars. I sought out relationships with pastors and leaders who were willing to talk about things beyond straw man fallacies and indoctrinated thinking. And I found one. I found one who would talk openly about skepticism, fallacies, and thinking, and, and on and on. I tried valiantly to find holes in the arguments. What about the lack of credibility, the errors and the possible omissions throughout the Bible? Didn't that disprove the rest? What about the incongruous statements between faith and evidence? Didn't that disprove the lack of credibility? I talked about the need for ethos, logos, and pathos, credibility, logic, and passion. Told you he was super educated. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Where am I, sorry. Noting, he talked about that, noting that I'd only seen the manufacturing of two in my lifetime. But the pastor and some ensuing people from that church who I found would talk through this with me. They did not act as if such conversations were beneath them or afraid that they would pollute their soul. They did not treat me like a child nor like a pagan. They didn't knock on my door every day asking what I was thinking. At times, I wanted them to reach out and ask. I wanted them to engage me, but instead, they just let me drift with them, allowing me to ask when we happened to get together if I wanted to. And usually, I would. But believe me when I say that I fought with everything I had. I did not want to be stupid again. I did not want to be fooled again. Jesus sat squarely in the realm of Santa to me. And I didn't want to be an adult who still believed in Santa. But a few of the words busted through. How could God expect us to believe something that the disciples who witnessed it firsthand couldn't believe? They disbanded him and fled for the hills and they knew the guy. They saw miracles, yet they didn't believe. But then some of the arguments actually had no good comebacks. Those same disciples came back. They witnessed the miracle. And then years later, after they had started churches around the globe, all but one died defending that truth. Then he says something so good. That wasn't cult behavior. That wasn't getting caught up in a Kool-Aid moment. They thoughtfully gave up their lives, often in hideous fashions, to proclaim the legitimacy of Christ's sacrifice. As passionate as the loud crying atheists on YouTube were, the denial of the Jesus legacy was something I could not get past. And then he ended the letter by saying this. And so, as we make way for a new year, and as I seek out my path, I have not forgotten the blood of Jesus surrendered for me. I know that my former life lurks on the edges of my heart, shiny and still like a knife. My own inner voice ebbs and flows with points and counterpoints. But today I proclaim publicly for the first time that I weakly believe that if Jesus conquered death, he is deserving of my thanks and praise. What a Christmas gift. You see, the thing that finally convinced him was the credibility of Christ. The credibility of these eyewitnesses because he could no longer question the integrity of people 
who said they saw something and then were willing to, not in the fervor of a moment, yeah, this is awesome. People do dumb things when everybody's going, yeah, this is awesome. They had lots of time to doubt, lots of time to walk away, years, decades, and yet they walked through the pain of all this over and over and over and over again and with integrity held on to what they said they saw. And they did it. And my friend could not deny the legacy of that. So let me ask again, why? Why do sincere, educated Christians believe in the credibility of the Bible? Well, the authors claim to be eyewitnesses and it seems like the evidence around them backs that up. There are ancient historical documents outside of the Bible that were written by opponents of Christianity that corroborate what was written. And the writers themselves remained committed to what they had said and what they had seen for decades. And you can't really question that kind of integrity. Sure, you can question what they wrote, of course, but you can't question their integrity. I mean, if there's any court case, man, you trust that. You trust that. It's huge. So that's why. And I know, I know, I know, I know that just one quick talk on a Sunday can't convince, you know, if you're struggling with, can I believe the Bible? One talk won't cover all the questions. I totally get that. And it won't make you go, oh my gosh, I believe the Bible. That's great. That's not going to happen. I know that. But what I want to do is I just want to kind of bring up these ideas and say, this is why I believe it. But there's one question, and I don't have much time to go into this. There's one more question we need to ask. Sure, can we trust? Yes, there's historical corroboration. Yes, that happened in history outside of the Bible that corroborates the whole story. Yes, these people probably had integrity. So I kind of think I need to read what they said just because. But can I believe the current, what if, what if the, the English version that I have today, is that sound, does, is that actually the words that was written by these guys when they were eyewitnesses in the first century? How do I trust that? And my simple answer to that after tons of study and after tons of research, the simple answer is this. We live in the world of Google. And what I mean by that is it's really hard when you've got literally the copies of these people's manuscripts online, copies. You can go Google the manuscripts and you, if you can read Greek, you can read the original copies because we've got photos of them online. We've got access to all the archaeologists, all the critics, all the academics, all the people, all the historians, all the scholars, all of what they say on, on we've got access to that. And if we have access to that and we read the English Bible, you can't pretend that the English Bible says something when it doesn't in our world of Google. It doesn't work anymore. We've got too much access to questioners and skeptics. And in that, what you realize is that we have these physical copies of the original documents called manuscripts. In fact, the New Testament has more manuscripts than any other historical ancient document. We have 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, 10,000 Latin, 9,300 almost uh, of other languages, almost 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament that you can see. I actually, if I ever get to England one day, I, there's, in Manchester, England, at the John Rylands Library is the oldest fragment of Scripture. And it's, it's a piece of John's Gospel. And it's sitting there. You can go look at it. 
It's amazing. You can see, and it was written in about 100, between 100 and 150 AD. It was a copy of the Gospel of John. Someone got it and was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I got to copy this and send it to a friend. And he sent it to someone in Egypt. They found this piece in Egypt because everybody was so excited. They wanted to make copies and let everybody see. And because we've got 25,000 manuscripts, scholars can take all these copies and go, so what did the original say? And they compare them. It's really hard not to believe that the English version is what the originals had because we've got 25,000 copies. Do you know how many copies we have of Tacitus' writings, the annals? And we believe that Nero existed, right? We believe that. Do you know how many copies we have of Tacitus' you know, document called the annals? Um, Ronald Meller, a professor of Greek and Roman history at the University of California, wrote a book called Tacitus' Annals. And he tells us that we have two copies of Tacitus's annals, two copies. We have 25,000 of the New Testament. It's crazy. So it's really hard to doubt that somebody wrote. You know, if you take it from a scholarly and a historical point of view, it's really hard to doubt that somebody wrote this document called Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the rest of the New Testament. It's really hard to doubt that. And they claim to be eyewitnesses of something incredible that's corroborated by historical opponents. And so when I look at the Bible, why do educated Christians believe in the credibility of the Bible? Because the authors claim to be historical. Again, claim to be uh, eyewitnesses of an event, of something that happened, and it seems like the backing backs it up. Historical opponents corroborate what happened. If we didn't have the Bible, Jesus is a historical figure that was crucified by Pontius Pilate and created a movement that took over Rome. The writers themselves have incredible integrity because they were willing to die for what they wrote years and years and years later. And finally, we have thousands of manuscripts, copies of those original documents that we can actually read today, thousands of them. So the credibility of this book that we have, the Bible, that brings together these manuscripts is not really questioned. Yes, what was written is very much questioned, but the integrity of these documents that somebody wrote it and it tells something that happened in history is not really questioned anymore today. And that makes me go, do I believe what it said? And that's where we'll end today because next week I'm gonna share one of the reasons why I do and why so many Christians do believe what this said, but the manuscripts, the document, the English Bible we have, it's, it's historical. It's something that can be trusted, and the integrity of those men who wrote it can be trusted. Let me pray for us, then we'll head out. Father, thank you. I'm so grateful for the incredible, life-altering, calendar-changing, history-altering moment of Jesus. He changed everything. God, thank you for sending your son because you love the world so much. Thank you for allowing Paul and James and Peter and Luke and Mark and Matthew to write the stuff down. Thank you for the people who sacrificed their lives copying the stuff. Thank you for Paul who got beheaded defending it. Thank you for these men who had integrity so that we can read the stuff and read what eyewitnesses of Jesus wrote. Thank you so much. And Father, as we navigate this, I pray that you help us show compassion for people who don't trust it. Help us be like Christ in that way. And then help people navigate their doubt, their questions in a way that's honest, 
and can come to a place where they go, okay, God, if this is you, help me understand it. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.